Wilkins is Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Jessica. I'm Georgia. And with us today we've got Rosie. Rosie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about where you've come from, how you've come to be at Manchester, and a bit about your research? Yeah, so I started uni when I was 18 straight out of school. I went to Leeds Uni. Um, I was studying. <laughs> <laughs> I was studying um, Arabic and Islamic studies. I did that for a year and then I went on my year abroad for two months and I was like, I don't enjoy learning a language. I don't find this very stimulating. So I dropped out, came home and I was like, well, I hate living at home. I need to figure out, I need to find a degree that I want to do. And um, the funny reason of how I ended up doing archaeology is I was like clearing out my bedroom when I got home because my mum always says I've got too much stuff. And I was going through all of these like diaries that I had when I was a kid. And you know, in the front, it's like, what's your favorite time of day? What's your favorite food? What do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. And all of the what do you want to be when you grow up just said archaeologist. So I was like, yeah, all right, let's see what's that about, <laughs> what that's about. And then I applied to Manchester, got in. So I did my undergrad here. That took me four years because I had to reset a year. Mm. And then I did, and then I went straight into my master's here at Manchester, and then I went straight into my PhD. Wow. Yeah. It's straight been the system. a long time of being here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those of us who, uh, who have been here for all of it, you end up very attached to it. Yeah, I like can't actually imagine not just coming to this uni every day yeah, anymore. I and I'm worried for when that has to happen. <laughs> you know when you go to a conference at another university and you're at another university and it's just kind of like, oh, like why do they do it? Shoes. Why do they do it like this? Yeah. So, that's, so that's what I had. So I love Leeds. My attachment to Leeds is very deep-seated. And then I went to UCL and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I really didn't like it. And then Manchester is good. Manchester is fine. On a par with Leeds. It, even the student union? No, the Not the student shit, union. The SU <laughs> at Leeds is incredible. <laughs> they used to have like a meal deal that was like two pounds. Yeah. Well, UCL great. doesn't really have an SU, so imagine what that was like. <laughs> um, so do you want to tell us uh, about your PhD project? Yes. So I focus on the archaeology of southern Mesopotamia, which is in modern southern Iraq. And my time period is approximately the third millennium BC. However, I do end up spilling into the first half of the second millennium. So it's around from 3000 to 1600 BC-ish. Um, so the first urban environments evolved in southern Mesopotamia around 3500 BC. And I focus on these urban environments. And But from the 1980s onwards until fairly recently, due to like geopolitical reasons, it was pretty impossible for archeologists to conduct field work out there. So a lot of research stagnated, especially in terms of um, the study of architecture because there weren't like museum collections mm. to still study. And often studies of architecture within archeology span and especially within Mesopotamian archeology, span it's kind of like typologized into like domestic or monumental. And in my research prior to starting the PhD, I was getting really annoyed because I'm like, it's all together. It's all in one space. It's all in one environment. It's an urban environment. Mm. Um, so this led to like my big research question of how can we actually rethink early Mesopotamian urbanism, urban environments and urban architecture. So I'm going to be doing 
I'm doing like a reanalysis of urban sites um, in terms of like the ground plans, mm. um, and I'm going to be 3D reconstructing a neighbourhood um, from the site of uh, that was excavated by Leonard Woolley and Max Malawan. Um, to and I'm gonna put like environmental variables on it so like sun and shade so we can like figure out where the shade was at different times and because everything was built in mud brick over there we're gonna be adding in the properties of mud brick to the 3d model to see how it thermally behaves mm. because when it's hot if you go into a mud brick structure it's quite cool whereas when, whereas when it's like cold it's actually pretty warm it like retains the heat well so it's a really interesting like material that also hasn't been looked at in that way quite a lot mm. um, and I'm taking a bottom-up approach to my project so I'm looking at the relationships between peoples and materials and the relationship between materials and materials and how these relationships create spaces and then I'm looking at how those relationships between people, materials and spaces in turn creates urban forms. That is, I mean, an incredibly <laughs> thorough explanation. <laughs> more like women and their friends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think, um, I, I guess one of the reasons why you've got such a, a good explanation for where you're at right now is you've kind of just been through this process of defining yeah, your so project. Just kind of like redefined the whole thing because I had a bit of a panic uh, in like November about like oh my god what am I doing like I don't know if I can do because originally the plan was to like 3d model two entire urban sites which actually is kind of impossible because they haven't been excavated and also it was like really hard I haven't had any prior experience in 3d modeling and research IT don't know anything about 3d modeling which is real useful so I had to like we had to like rethink of a new way to approach it so we're going a bit more theoretical we're going a bit more down the let's look at mud brick as a material route and then having just like a small neighborhood to mm. exemplify what I was trying to point out and I think it's really interesting to think about archaeology which I know that people do more recent archaeology projects but yours in particular we're talking about sites and places and people from that literal thousands of years mm. in the past but it's also a field where you're using quite a lot of these sort of digital humanities mm. tools and using technology in a way that you know other disciplines in the same like in the same faculty aren't so it's kind of exciting to think about yeah like 3d modeling a neighborhood how cool is that yeah, and yeah. That how archaeology has changed by these new technologies because you know when you were talking about your project i'm like I do ask the so what question, and which is, I don't know, like it's a legitimate question to ask about archaeology because it's like 6,000 years ago, but I guess if you're really looking at it from a different, with it, using different materials like IT, you can then supplement what we already know, maybe change it, and that, then that will hopefully trickle down into areas like history and yeah. sociology. I think the beauty of archaeology is that it's always been interdisciplinary. Mm. It's just here like, oh, let's get a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this. So I think archaeology as a discipline is more open to change and adapting and stuff like that. It's got that tangential relationship with yeah. the science of yeah. it all, hasn't it? And science, obviously, you know, if we were a bunch of science PhDs, it wouldn't be amazing to us to think the field will be completely different in 10 years because that's that's sort of a stated yeah. aim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas really, we might use some like different 
theory, but the way that history is done hasn't no, really no, changed. Exactly. Well, particularly like social history, it's not like you can use like new maps or whatever. Like, you know, geographical history, you could probably use like new technology to understand census mm. records or whatever. I feel like <laughs> history at least has started to do things. You start to see people doing things like digital mapping projects yeah. and stuff, but even then, that's not really that different from having a map that you've stuck pins into mm. in in real yeah. life. It's not like an innovative mm. digital thing in the same way that sort of digital reconstruction can be. Especially because of the way the the further away something is in time, the harder it is to to visualise, to imagine, to think mm. about what it's really like. And so any technique that can sort of yeah, make it visual, make it accessible, mm. make it tangible is is sort of going to make that such a more relatable project. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's it is really cool. And another thing that I love about what I do is because a lot of stuff within Mesopotamia stagnated for so long, and it's only really recently that people have been able to go back to Iraq. That I'm working my like primary data sources are like the excavation reports, and that's from. Like, Woolly dug uh, uh, in, like, the 20s and the 30s. My other case study was dug in, like, the 40s and the 50s. Mm. So I'm working with these old, like, data sets and just, like, these old books that are really boring. Um, <laughs> and, like, trying to, like, breathe life into mm. them again. Mm. Um, so it's, it is really cool. There's almost, like... like a double layer to the archaeology there, right? Like you're sort the of, un of the uncovering and digging up the your un the dig. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to like the theoretical archaeology conference, there's always a paper on like the archaeology of archaeology, and I'm like, this is too meta. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Though. I really like this idea that you're like looking at urban urban history because we, I do urban history, and this idea that urbanism is like a science the downward spiral of modernity like the bad side of modernity is urban life and bliss was the village and the church and local life around that and we kind of glorify the countryside or you know the, the anti-urban lifestyle but you're by tracing it urban living as a unity of several different institutions you're really kind of putting urbanism back on the map i guess yeah definitely and i don't see it as like I don't see urbanism as like the downfall. No, of I don't. But I think a but traditional people. A lot of stuff does when I get into like urban theory and stuff. But I'm like, this is so cool. It's the first urban environment. Well, yeah, that's why I like. So it. I'm like, it's cool seeing it like evolve and seeing these like. Obviously, it isn't what we would classify as a city today, which is why I try to like call it an urban environment before I start some other theoretical fight <laughs> um but it's just really cool seeing how these things like expanded and adapted even over the course of what i think is a small amount of time of like 500 years <laughs> <laughs> so like, you see like this site completely change from 500 years and like get bigger and bigger and bigger and take up more of the landscape and it's really cool it's mm -hmm. and you mentioned uh before a little bit about sort of the interaction between the built environment and the weather which is something that I thought was was really interesting so I went to a talk of yours where you just talked about like 
the sort of the weather extremes in southern Iraq oh, just wow yeah your experiences of those yeah that was mental so I was in southern Iraq October to December 2018 yeah 2018 and so on the first day we got there we came out two weeks after the directors did and we got there and we were boiling we were like exhausted because it had been like an 18 hour thing and just like had to sit in Istanbul airport overnight with like a migraine <laughs> that's not fun and we got there and it's 39 degrees and we're like oh god I'm gonna die and everybody else gets back from sight and they're like yeah first day under 40 and I was like oh my but then it's like the weather the two months I was there was absolutely mental because it was like boiling hot like late 30s like hot at night i couldn't handle sleeping without aircon and then all of a sudden like just one night i like woke up in the middle of the night and you could hear like the rain thrashing down and we were like sleeping in these tiny little porter cabins and you could see like the cabin being lit up by this lightning and i was like ah oh, well this is a strange nightmare and i just went back to sleep and then i woke up the next day and everybody was like we're not going to site because there was so much rain mm. and then we'd hit the rainy season and it was mental the thunderstorms were like nothing i've ever seen before like it was just mental I, like i'm from the lake district <laughs> and i haven't seen rain that aggressive for uh. quite some time and then you got like weird fog early in the morning and you couldn't see like 10 meters in front of you um i was out there with like my supervisor and his project and he went to like go get pegs from the grids that we were doing and we lost him like after like five minutes because he just <laughs> disappeared into the fog and then he got lost on the way back because nobody could see anything but then after the fog like the fog would clear up about like 10 a.m and then it'd be like 25 degrees and this was just december mm. and it was really weird coming back to manchester in the middle of december but it was not the kind of weather that i was expecting from southern iraq we were in the basra province so it was like the most southern of southern mm. iraq it was pretty crazy <laughs> i guess it's like interest it like adds a bit of uh, interest to your understanding of time of, of what it would be like to live in that yeah yeah, especially if you're in sort of a mud brick building, to know that somewhere with sort of big weather extremes, extremes of temperature, um, heavy rain and stuff, it must, it does really complicate the sort of image of of an ancient sort of built environment. It really does, because I, Mesopotamia is not a desert, it's an alluvial plain. I still got there and was like, this isn't a desert. You just like picture like this picturesque desert mm. yeah. that's just hot all the time and then suddenly it's raining and you're like what? This is what I wanted. But yeah. I thought it was really important for me to go there um, and that was right at the start of my PhD so I started my PhD and a month later I went to Iraq for two months. Um, the grad school office weren't best pleased let's put it that way mm. <laughs> um, but it was so important for me because I also look at like the experience of living mm. in the urban environment and how how do you do that how yeah I guess no um, <laughs> I kind of because I really like sensory archaeology however I can feel it's like a bit like wavy and like guessing and stuff a lot so I try and bring it back and cement it in like science and like climatology and stuff so I've like delved into like really boring old climate records of temperatures and rainfall and like weather patterns 
to kind of like because I like sensory stuff mm. but also I feel like it could be a bit more rooted in science but that's like I said that's what I love about archaeology I love bringing these two th kinds of things together so yeah so I kind of like and obviously I have a bias I'm a western white person I perceive this environment as but, a western so white person I, yeah. would so I just have to like kind of be ve a be very aware of that and be just like try and figure it out because when I was there and when it was December it'd be like 3 p.m we would have just had lunch it's still quite warm it's like 20 degrees I'm sat outside like oh this is nice the mm. sun is nice and then one of my Iraqi colleagues came out of his cabin in like a full-on like puffy jacket <laughs> shivering and I was like okay well this is definitely winter for you mm. this is the best kind of summer we get in England and when I told him that he was like what really but yeah so it's kind of hard because I perceive the hot th like the hot weather for example as well hot but people are adapted to that so yeah that's why I'm wondering like how do you translate the science of like climatology to a lived experience to use theory like how do you bridge that I try to just be like Oh no, this is gonna sound really bad, but I'm sorry guys. <laughs> I try to just be like, it's like July, the average temperature is 40 degrees, it's hot. Mm -hmm. But also people did change, like in Iraq now, people um, adapt the way they like live their life according to the seasons mm. so like it's like the siestas in like europe mm. everybody has their lunch and then goes and sleeps it off for the rest of like the hot day it's quite similar to that so i'm just kind of like trying to but i haven't really fully got there yet and so this is really a lame question are you it's reflexive fine. in your writing so you're saying i feel this do you bring in you i the, the first person i have a climate diary Okay. from when I was there of my perception yeah, right, of right, right. like the temperature and I like took the wind speed everybody was taking the mick out of me on site because <laughs> I'd be like guys it's 10 10 a.m need to take the wind <laughs> speed um and then I'd just stand up there <laughs> holding a little thing um so I have my own little like diary of that and that's going to be included in the appendix right. mm. it's not gonna I'm not going to put it in like the main body or anything, no. but it's going to be included in the appendix of like, oh, this is like w how I felt when I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's this is something I was just thinking again about archaeology as a discipline is that I understand that, you know, there's different kinds of archaeologies and stuff, but all the archaeologists I know have been on at least one dig, right? Mm. Like, so there's something very bodily about mm. it. Like, it is, it's. Uh, a science and art and it comes with a bit of physical activity so there's your bodily experience of the dig does actually have something to say about what it was like to live and work there because for a little time even as a person who mm. is obviously not used to 40 degree yeah. heat <laughs> yeah. you were a person who lived and worked there and you know a little porter cabin might not be the same as a mud brick house but it's probably got some traits in common mm, in terms mm. of not being like super well insulated and or oh mudbrick's more insulated <laughs> yeah. than that um, <laughs> i'll tell you that for free mm. uh, <laughs> we had like aircon and heating in oh, our little enough. cabin oh, nice. um which was quite cushy actually mm. and we had a real bed it was the fanciest project i've been on yeah. to be honest because nice. it wasn't like going as a student 
but yeah like field work but field work is a strange lifestyle because it's a temporary one but you just get there and everyone's in it and everyone's like doing the same thing at the same time because you're all in a routine mm. but yeah we still because i've dug in um cyprus twice and in england well england and scotland twice and then iraq once um although i will say i'm not i'm not a digger in mm -hmm. iraq i was surveying <laughs> which is much more fun i just walked up and down with like an instrument strapped to me in a grid it was great mm -hmm. um but in the hot countries on the uh, like on digs in hot countries you're like up you're on site in cyprus we were on site by 5 30 in the morning um, to get the coolest part of the day to right? get the coolest part of the day and we'd stop at like 12 30 and then we'd have like second breakfast at like 9 9 30. archaeologists yeah. are hobbits <laughs> yeah we really are we oh god we really are <laughs> but yeah and then like after second breakfast in cyprus you'd be like it's so hot i don't want to go back and then everybody would be done by like midday in iraq it was kind of different because we were at the mercy of the drivers who um, everyone in Iraq works on their own time <laughs> so occasionally people wouldn't turn up on time but we'd get on site try to get on site for like 6 6 30 and finish at like 12 ish um, and then we would do some other stuff in the afternoon like washing pottery or mm. the directors would go off and do their important director things mm. but I just had to wash pots and bone I always got I remember being in Rome one time I went to like a old Roman what do they call it ruins and um, there was like a team of archaeologists there and they just looked like they're having such a nice time it was like break time and they're just eating like watermelon oh, and yes. it was August and I was just like oh maybe I should do archaeology <laughs> instead <laughs> um, but I imagine it's probably not as uh, it sounds like sometimes it's probably quite a lot bored, like quite boring <laughs> yeah well this is my thing with digging like you get some archaeologists who die hard love excavating mm. love it so much like will that's all they want to do with their like that's what they want to do with their life like they just want to work in commercial or just like freelance and work around the world digging i'm not a digger i my attention span is not made for that <laughs> um because you've got to be careful and you can't like you gotta like make sure you're doing it all like level and it's yeah it i find it boring and i get restless and bored and then right. i distract everyone in the trench um yeah not great i love being on site um i love being like on site like doing paperwork chatting to people mm. it's like a school holiday i imagine there are so many cook-ups uh, yeah oh <laughs> yeah there are so many dig romances and it's always funny because like ever, especially on like more like student training digs everyone's always like sleeping in quite close quarters so the second time i went to cyprus for instance we were sleeping on the roof of this house just mattresses on on the roof that was it and then there was this one couple and they were like oh where do we go to like hook up and then <laughs> it was quite funny and then like um oh a couple of days later she was like yeah so we tried it on a bench and it didn't really work oh um yeah it's kind of interesting <laughs> sounds like a worse night oh actually they so there's a reconstructed village so it's like experimental archaeology so some people like rebuilt these like houses and that's where people went to hook up <laughs> oh my god in like, in, like so an experimentally sad. built no, like think... roundhouse yeah but there's no like floor it's just mud mm, okay i was about to be like i think that's hot but i'm wrong <laughs> 
I just like I don't know like an empty cavernous mud house yeah but it's a dirty I just imagine like having sex on the floor and just be like covered in clay yeah, that, so now I'm that, back to yeah. thinking that sounds good. <laughs> I'm a clean person. I'm your skin. <laughs> I was going to say it's like you could do like a sort of historical role. Oh play. yes, yeah, you could. Oh, you? No. oh, I've just throw down the sheet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what a roundhouse is about. Oh, I've just come back from hunting a local sheep. <laughs> just into temple now, I'm horny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyway, this seems like a great opportunity um, to pivot. You you, uh, you said before the recording that you weren't sure if you were going to have something funny to share, but it sounds like you uh, oh, I probably of one. have something funny from Fieldwork. So, yeah, we like to ask our guests to tell us a funny story from their research. Okay, so told you the Cypress hookup story. <laughs> I'm going to point out that that was not me. Mm, <laughs> a likely story. <laughs> it wasn't. Um... So when we were in Iraq, um, we had a few, like quite a few days where we just couldn't go on site because it had like rained and because the site's like on a dirt track for like 20 minutes, like the cars wouldn't make it there. And when we weren't on site, we weren't really allowed to leave like the camp, which was quite small. And it got to like the second or third day and everyone was like getting like aggy and annoyed because we're all like in such close quarters mm. so um one of the directors was like oh let's uh let's have a trip into basra and we can go see the basra museum um which is lovely and um so we went and there was three cars like three pickups to take us all there and then we had to have a police escort because that's just the rules as when we're there and then halfway on the way to the, like halfway on the way to Basra, we stopped for petrol. And then it just turns out that like one car isn't really working, but we carry on anyway. And then the next thing that happens, like just we've lost a car and then everyone's freaking out because we all have to stay in the convoy. And then we realize that the car's broken down. So then we all turn around, drive down the wrong side of the road. But because the police were in front, it was fine. They were just gesturing at people to get out of the way um and then everyone had to pile out of the broken car um and then pile into the current cars but because there weren't any there wasn't much space so then we had to have this big reshuffle where a load of like the guys went and sat in the police car with the police which was a pickup and <laughs> and sadly i didn't get to experience this um <laughs> but so there were these so there were the guys sat in the police car but then two of the police had to like stand in like the pickup bed of the truck and they when we got into basra there was like a load of traffic and the police were just in the like in the back of the pickup just like gesturing at like cars to move out of the way because they were impatient they want we we all wanted food we were yeah, hungry yeah, yeah. they were like just gesturing at people to like get out of the way with their like ak's just like oh you know just just get out of the way and apparently in the car like the policemen were all having like a jolly time like shouting through like the tannoy <laughs> on the top of the car and they were like fighting over who got to do it next it was just really one of the strangest experiences I've ever had and then like a car broke down in front of us and one of the policemen was just like get out the way oh get out the way it was over there it's like a different world the way everybody chaotic. does stuff it's like absolute chaos and now I understand why my supervisor is like 
so laid back he's basically lying down because he's worked in the Middle East for like 30 years and I'm like you can't do that if you're an anxious person or you like like things done a specific way you've just got to deal with it yeah well just like having a police convoy imagine if I had a police convoy every time I went to Manchester Central Library <laughs> It was pretty funny. I'm coming through, guys. And the police would try and, like, make friends with us, which was really, really cute. And um, one of them, um, only one of the police smoked. And um, one day both of our lighters broke. Mm. And we were, like, absolutely inconsolable. And we were, like, trying to, like, figure out how to, like, light a cigarette. <laughs> and then he, some, uh, every so often, like, some police would just come to the site to see what was going on I think because not much was going on in the village that we were living mm. in um, and he brought like a lighter and then one of the policemen gave me a lighter and he was like there you go although you shouldn't smoke it's bad if you want babies <laughs> <laughs> have we still got the lighter? Uh, no it broke like two, two days later <laughs> <laughs> well. um, so Rosie thank you so much for joining us today yeah, it's been you. really good one of those episodes where it's actually sort of really funny yeah <laughs> like <laughs> sometimes it's like yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally yeah. oh you can always laugh about archaeology yeah yeah absolutely um so yeah thank you so much for taking the time and for um sharing with us jess thanks for hosting oh thank you and like always don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. <laughs> Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom. <laughs>